Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, this week I move away from sailing and cruising to the commercial shipping industry in an interview with Valeria Sulima. The nice thing about doing my own podcast is I get to pick and choose who I talk to and who I put on the podcast. And I am interested in the commercial shipping industry. And with Valeria, she has worked around the commercial shipping industry for quite some time. She's a young woman who's been involved in entrepreneurial activities in Germany. So I thought it would be fun to talk to her about her background. But before we get to that, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. Looking for a sewing machine that's both portable and powerful? Look no further than the legendary Sailrite Ultrafeed LSZ-1. Take it to the marina, store it on your boat. The Ultrafeed goes where you go. This high-performing, heavy-duty machine sews both in zigzag and straight stitch. The Ultrafeed can handle your toughest jobs with absolutely zero loss of power or skip stitches. It breezes through up to 10 layers of Sunbrella canvas and 8 layers of Dacron sailcloth. With the most dependable all-metal internal components, the Ultrafeed is a piece of well-engineered machinery that's built to last. Sailrite has been building the Ultrafeed for over 20 years. This tried-and-true powerhouse machine comes with a 5-year limited warranty and the best customer service in the industry. The machines are assembled, fine-tuned, and tested at Sailrite's manufacturing facility by a team of highly trained technicians. Every machine is calibrated and tested before it's shipped to guarantee both smooth operation and machine quality. Take your sewing skills to the next level with the Sailrite Ultrafeed LSZ-1 sewing machine. Before I get on to the interview with Valeria, I really want to thank my Patreons who've chosen to support the podcast. It really means a lot to me. There's three ways you can support this podcast, which I really appreciate. You can become a Patreon, and there's a link at the website at patreon.com backslash medsailor. And you can go there and become a Patreon if you like. It means a lot to me if you do become a Patreon. The other thing is you can buy my sailing audio lessons. I have audio lessons for preparing for the written portion of the ASA 101, the 103, and the 104. Like I say, I cannot teach you to sail. You have to get out on the water to learn to sail. But there's a lot of things you need to learn besides the actual skill of sailing, such as the terminology involved in sailing, such as anchoring techniques, the theory of anchoring, and, if, and lots of other subjects. And, and my audio courses for preparing for the various ASA exams is a good way to start. Even if you're not going to be taking the ASA exams and you just want to think about sailing, go buy my ASA 101 exam series of lessons. It's called Sailing, Learn to Sail, Basic Keelboat Certification Lessons for the ASA 101 exam. And that'll give you a good start down the, at least learning the terminology of sailing. And the last way you can be, and the last way you can support this podcast is become a sponsor. I have one sponsor so far, which is Sailrite, a company I like and a company I believe in. If you have a product that has 
merchandise that might be of interest to my cruising sailors, contact me. And as long as it's something that I think is of value to our listeners, I may consider you for sponsorship. The website for Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast is medsailor.com or www.medsailor.com. At the website, you will find all the show notes for the podcast, all the old episodes, which you can download directly from the website, and also links to download bundles of past episodes, if you so choose. There are also various resources for the Cruising Sailor at the website, and also links to purchase my audio series of lessons for the ASA 101, the 103, and the 104. Make sure you check out the website, medsailor.com. All right, let's get on to my interview with Valeria. I am on Skype with Sulima, or Val, is it Valeria Sulima? It's, it's Sulima Valeria. It's, it sounds differently, but I completely pronounce it, and it was Russian or Ukrainian uh, pronunciation. Well, Valeria, it uh, sounds quite Italian, I would say, probably for you. What could be? <laughs> it, that sounds Italian. Anyway, Valeria connected with me on LinkedIn and how I found out about her is I belonged to one of the uh, shipping groups on LinkedIn and she had put in a post where she um, suggested that some of the commercial shippers might tune into some of these podcasts and recommended my podcast, which led me to interview Bjorn, who was on the podcast a little while ago, who was a, working in a cruise ship. And uh, I thought, well, let's get Valeria on and talk to you about your background. Now, you sent me a little bit of background information on yourself, which is more than anybody else does, I might point out. It turns out you're from Ukraine, and I've zoomed in on Google Earth, and I cannot even try to pronounce the name of the town you come from. (laughs) Yes, yes, it's uh, quite a complicated name. It's called Dnepropetrovsk. Currently, it's uh, the name is shortened to Dnipro because of uh, our political situation in Ukraine right now. So they are changing and taking away all Russian connected parts and uh, try to make it purely sounding Ukrainian. So now it's Dnipro, but for me, since I'm from that time when the city was called, as everyone was used to, I still name it Dnipropetrovsk. Okay. Dnipro is easier for me to say, though. That's a lot easier for me. And it's also the name of the river, the main river of Ukraine, where, where all, many vessels are passing through. So a bit of confusion could, could arise, but, um, well, still, if it's to pronounce it much easier, then let, let it be. I'm happy that at least you're going to remember it. <laughs> that's already good for a city. So I'm looking at it, and it looks like that, like you said, that's where a navigable river comes up, and it looks like it breaks up one one leg going to the uh, to the northeast and the other one going basically west on that river. And so is that a navigable river all the way down to the Black Sea then? Well, of course not. Every size of uh, the vessels uh, can pass through, and the draft is quite not that deep. Um, but they have the government that had before plans to to make it deeper. The plans wasn't yet put in place, but uh, the, the project I think is great. And of course, uh, some of uh, the cargo that is coming to uh, Black Sea then is transported by the river to u- cities of Ukraine. Okay, well, it looks like an interesting city to visit. I've I had once thought about sailing up to the Black Sea, but I basically gave that up. 
Um, and I don't think I, I will ever take my boat up into the Black Sea. Not because I don't want to. It's just that when I when I I did a little bit of a land-based trip along the northern coast of Turkey that borders on the Black Sea and just didn't seem that interesting to me. But Well, I, what I want to do is when I visit Ukraine, I think I'd rather fly there rather than uh, <laughs> fly there. Well... I would definitely recommend to fly over, to visit Kyiv, uh, the capital, to visit Odessa, the maritime capital of Ukraine. And um, it's a, a totally different city and I find it quite unique. And anyone who comes also kind of highlights it. And then also Lviv, which is uh, Lvov, Lvov in Russian, Lviv in Ukrainian. The city that is uh, very admired by, by tourists because it resembles very much European culture. I know when I was in, in uh, Ianusis Island, I was in a maritime museum of a lot of the Greek shipping families there. And one of the main trades for the bulk shippers back in the day was uh, picking up grain from the Ukraine. So I guess the Ukraine was sort of the breadbasket for grains in the Mediterranean. It was. And it, it still is uh, maybe now a little bit less uh, due to political situation and some changes and also sanctions with Russia. Crimea now on the way in the Black Sea. So in case you um, get into the water that are uh, not allowed to, you might not then enter Ukraine. So vessels has to be very, have to be very careful. As far as I know, grain, of course, is still um, at the time of harvest. Uh, vessels are prepared to be sent to Ukrainian waters, let's say, to pick it up. Yeah. Well, that was one of the main bulk cargoes of the Greek shipping families back in the day. I think that was, yeah, and, and that probably continues on to today right now. So let's go, so let's go through your background. Uh, you're, uh, you, you have a very interesting curriculum vitae, so to speak, because you said it to me, and you speak multiple languages fluently, obviously. And let's go through your path into the commercial shipping industry? I, I don't have a shipping family or I wasn't born in a shipping city, but um, since uh, we spoke about Dnipropetrovsk, it's an industrial city. So I was always fascinated with industrial mechanism and machines and uh, I kind of like it. And then uh, it, it was always with me. So I wanted to be connected to big industries, let's say. I started in Russia at my uh, time when I was had to choose between uh, where, where to go, between economics or law, that was the most popular um, subjects at the time. Um, I, since I was a person of uh, letters rather than numbers, I chose law. And I pursued this career for, for six years. First, um, um, I, when I was 16, I went to Moscow, started international law there. And then I moved to London to continue my education for the master degree. We have a practice that um, after bachelor, you don't, you, you just go straight away, away for master. So in Europe, I found out the difference that usually um, students has a, have the opportunity to go and work for some time. <laughs> we don't have that. Um, and I think, in my opinion, it's uh, a mistake um, because uh, most of the crowd was uh, in their 30, 36 age already with experience. And I didn't have that while I was studying. I was... Uh, Reading a book um, that was my father's book called Two Captains, <laughs> there was a pilot captain and one that was the head of expedition 
to one of uh, one of the lands that he, they discovered later. And uh, because of this adventurous period, I chose shipping. In London, I started to meet people from from shipping, from yachting, from insurance business, uh, and um, I very much liked the spirit. Um, the values that this, these people had, how welcoming they were, how open they were also to, to new members. And I realized that, well, this is exactly what I wanted. And when I finished my studies, um, I received an internship at the Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. Um, this is a very interesting um, institution. It's a tribunal that solves um, disputes between states. And it's uh, one of the cases that was also... Um, considered there it was the case between Ukraine and Russia for instance so and I was I think in the middle of uh, of the events because uh, when I was passing my internship delegations from Russia were coming okay this, this, let me talk a little bit about the tribunal of the law of the sea so explain explain how that would work so you said between let's say Ukraine and Russia would it be uh, the 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 Maritime borders that you would be talking about would it be uh, rules of the road? Would it be would it be um, accidents that occur between two countries? What would you be what would you be talking about or discussing? There is a convention. It's UN convention. Also, it's called for the law of the sea, and it gives a broad scope of what the tribunal, what kind of cases it can be involved. It's a, it's a delimitation of borders, as you said. It can be the arrest of the vessel, or for instance, it can be the seabed and uh, resources that you have in a seabed. Also, if two countries have a dispute in regards to that, to whom belongs which part of the shelf, then that's also tribunal can look into that. Do they have the authority to actually make a decision that both parties agree with, or is it still subject to appeal, I guess, or war at that point in time? I think uh, it's a a final decision. Um, Of course, the parties can not accept the decision. For instance, there is a case between uh, China and uh, Philippines where court was on the side of the Philippines and China, for instance, is not implementing the decision of the court, of the tribunal. Okay. So is that where the headquarters is uh, in Hamburg for the tribunal of the law of the sea? Is that where it's headquartered then? Yes, it's uh, it's based in Hamburg. Well, it's very nice and uh, historical building because uh, many historical events were happening there. It's, it's good to to see the building, to be present, to get to know judges, and it's something unique. Okay, so you were an intern there for how long? For four months, you said. For four months, yes, that was the case. And then there are people from different countries coming there. I met. Um, a nice lady who worked before um, in the uh, Ministry for of the Sea in Portugal, and she introduced me to my uh, first employer, exclusive agent to the Portuguese uh, registry of Madeira. And that was my first job. <laughs> okay, that was your first job. So, so the registry of Portugal, so that would be Portuguese registered ships then? Yes, it will uh, sail under the Portuguese flag, the International Registry of Madeira. So they accept uh, uh, vessels from uh, any countries. A ship owner can be based anywhere. Um, and then um, depending, of course, on their requirements and uh, some, some other conditions, they allow this vessel to sail on the Portuguese flag. Okay, so is Madeira, is that, is Madeira or Portugal considered a flag of convenience? For shipping? That's something I would not be uh, brave to say because uh, I guess there are the different um, sources or entities that claim that it's indeed it's a flag of convenience, but I guess that uh, there is also the opposite opinion. Let's talk about that for a second because 
you know, my understanding of a flag of convenience is uh, you don't have a lot of bureaucracy uh, in setting up ownership documents. Uh, you're not as subject to inspections as you might be if, let's say, you were a U.S. documented vessel. Um, what would, how would you explain what, what a flag of convenience is? Roughly speaking, why I think that Portugal is um, is an interesting case because they still have um, it's if we know Liberian flag or Marshall Islands, we know that um, it's uh, there is heavily involved the private uh, arm, let's say. And then if we look at Portugal, then uh, they uh, they have a government, they have uh, a public entity that issues um, documents that uh, decides on cases on whether anything happens to the vessel, they are the one to be responsible for. So, um, and the procedures are, of course, it's a bit more flexible, than, um, still um, you need to fulfill requirements. So um, in this regards... Um, I wouldn't see the the flag of, of Portugal um, of pure case of lack of convenience. Yes, it's open to other um, ship owners of other nationalities. Still, it has requirements that you need to follow. Okay. Okay. Yeah, even the mega yachts that I see out there, they all are flying flags of convenience. You know, every, every big boat that I see out there is from uh, Cayman Islands or somewhere else like that, that these big mega yachts that are owned by American businessmen or international businessmen, you know, they buy their big yachts and they're all, no one registers their boat in, uh, in Delaware, except for the Turks. The Turks register their boats in Delaware so they can avoid the Turkish taxes. That seems to be mostly about uh, avoiding taxes more than anything else. I remember that uh, the managing director of our company was explaining to me that exactly this different between flag of convenience and why Portugal should be or should not be considered as such. So I think that my answer could be a bit vague and um, maybe should be checked. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, what I want to say with the taxes, it's all about where the company is registered because behind the yacht you have uh, probably a company and they're very important where this company is registered. The flag is um, more about uh, the requirements to the crew to the maintenance, where you can sail or where there is a limits. In that regard, this is where you need to understand under which flag you want to be. And some flags are more flexible, some are less. And this should be taken into account, of course. Yeah, in the United States, we have what's called the Jones Act, which states that any transit between U.S. ports has to be done by a U.S. registered ship with U.S. crew. And uh, so... So you'll see international ships coming into port, discharging their cargo and leaving port. But then that cargo, when it moves within the United States coastal waters, would be moved by a U.S. registered ship, a Jones Act ship, as they call them. Uh, and I remember when I was sailing across the Atlantic, I was uh, a few days out of the Azores. And I was at night and I saw this ship coming up behind me ever so slowly I saw the light, and and after a while, I hear on the radio uh, somebody calling out to us. He he saw us, and he said, "I see a ship. I see a boat out there on my port bow." And uh, and I so I came and started talking to him, and he was he was a U.S. ship delivering supplies to the U.S. military base on uh, in the Azores, 
into Sarah in the Azores. So even the Jones Act applied to that, going between the uh, United States and supplying a military base, a U.S. military base overseas. They record uh, a U.S. crew for that, which I thought was interesting. So that's what you're talking about when you're talking about flags. Uh, Certain flags allow you to work in different areas and possibly not other areas. Is that correct? Exactly. So that's the main thing that you need to consider because of um, not knowing that, run into trouble, just out of knowledge. And that's something that should be very carefully checked. You also heard there is a cabotage when you sail between um, islands. Um, in order to experience less troubles in the ports, you need to have a European flag, for instance. And uh, many charterers prefer to have a vessel with a European flag because they know they're going to save time. Okay, so that would be the advantage of being registered in Madeira because that's technically European then, right? Yes, and that's why um, European Union was stressing on this uh, very much, because they knew that many vessels were flagging out from EU flags to Marshall Islands, Liberia, Antigua, Barbuda, or any uh, other flag that were more convenient, even were more ahead in regards to technologies and um, expertise. And in order to attract uh, shipping companies back, they implemented some old rules appreciating having an EU flag. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds interesting. Did you enjoy that job? Yeah, I did because not that many people know this um, kind of field exists. In my role, I had the a pleasure to talk to many people from, from different fields like uh, ship owners, ship managers, classification societies, port agents. And that's something that you sometimes don't have this pleasure in any other job. So usually what I see from my colleagues in other fields that you more or less uh, communicate with your colleagues of the same area, but don't too much uh, interact with other industry fields. And uh, in my case, since it's something that has an impact on different parts of shipping, also crewing, for instance, then you have unique opportunity to be able to speak to people and get to know them and to learn about their job. Well, how many languages do you speak? Well, Ukrainian and Russian, my native languages, and then uh, English and French. French was my first language at university. English is my working language. German is something I'm learning right now. And of course, the longer I stay in Hamburg, the more I see the necessity to improve my language skills. So would you say English is the language of the shipping industry then? I would say so. Okay. Yes, it dominates in many fields and in shipping especially. Okay, okay. So then then after that, you I'm looking at your um, your little write-up you sent me. You joined a startup. How did you yes. end up going? Now, I don't, when I think of Europe, uh, I just don't think of startups. I think of established businesses, and I don't think of startups. So how did you go about joining a startup company? Well, a nice thing also when you think about shipping, you're also not really um, associating shipping with uh, some startups. But that's something that's right now is happening in Europe. And shipping, well, it's Hamburg, I think. It's one of the shipping hubs that try to push shipping into the digital era. There are many interesting young people analyzing the field that they're working in and comes up with ideas. So um, how I came up with the startup, I met a founder. We we had a discussion. I have an approach of uh, analyzing, observing and asking questions and uh, I say checking it by myself and then believing in it. So um, he managed to answer all my questions um, and I believed in the idea and in, in the way how this can help shipping uh, to move to the next, to the different level and to make the life of workers and people that do this type of job better. I personally believe that 
you don't need to become crazy about technologies, but it's a good add to what we have right now. So in order to overcome the crisis um, and to step on the next level, technologies, automation, um, artificial intelligence is something that we can take advantage of. Okay. So that startup you told me was a, a startup to for purchasing marine lubricants, matching suppliers with ship owners, and that you were in charge of business development, which means you were bringing in business. Yes, that's what I did. I would say for startups, it's still a very difficult task. My colleagues in the business development for startups, I think we are all trying to have a new approaches to sales, to um, how to raise an interest and how to show the necessity of uh, exploring maritime startups or developing them and helping to implement their services into daily operations of the shipping companies. Okay. So this says you were the manager of the Mediterranean and Russian-speaking countries. Did you do much travel or did you mostly mm. work from uh, from the phone and on the computer? Well, shipping still needs a human presence. I would say that this will remain and shipping for long times. Um, even though we will have some things discussed over phone or in a video call, but I was traveling quite a lot. And I very much enjoyed it, this pace and the, the mode, meeting people, uh, listening to their needs, having, seeing what they are thrilled about and what they would like to, to be changed. You have a totally different impression of what is the, behind their desire, what what pushed them, let's say, to use this tool or not. And then, of course, you collect all this information and comes back to the team, discuss and see how, how you can improve or find the mutual points of interest. So then you can work together. So give me a smattering of the, the cities that you would have visited for this company then. Well, <laughs> for this company, the, of course, Greece was one of the first countries, and uh, I went there a couple of times to uh, to Athens, um, because also with the flag, I was uh, traveling there quite often, um, and I just continued um, broadening my network um, and seeing those customers that I had uh, with the flag, and then uh, also London. <laughs> Um, London, because uh, usually they, they do co conferences and uh, um, events that unites uh, or gathers a lot of uh, shipping crowd from all over the world. Um, also Baltics countries, so um, Riga, Latvia, for instance. Um, yeah, so that was probably the major cities where I went to during this year, okay. during that year when I worked for closing. So. So in, in Greece, you'd probably primarily go to Athens, correct? Yeah, two days with 10 meetings per day in different parts <laughs> of Athens. It was really very packed, but uh, very pleasant. Um, I very much enjoy um, visits to Greece and to Athens especially. It's always fascinating to see a different style of doing shipping in Germany and in Greece. You can identify the difference straight away. I think the mixture of both approaches will make it very close to being perfect. All right. So describe how, what's it like doing business in Greece? Is it having uh, 
coffee and ouzo and and uh, <laughs> what's it like? Yeah, and having a napkin nearby with a pen. <laughs> so because at any time someone can call you, maybe offer you some business. So you need to quickly make calculations, understand whether you need it or not, straight away give an answer. So that's how it's done in Greece. So they are managing to be flexible, but at the same time, when it comes to business, uh, they straight away turn their attention. They get very deeply into the topic, decide on spot usually, and then continue enjoying life. Whether in Germany, I would say that's all about efficiency, being more organized and uh, enjoy after working hours. <laughs> so, so what I'm hearing you say is the Greeks reach a, reach a decision quickly and then get back to enjoying life then. And the, the <laughs> yeah. Germans are much more analytical about it then. Yes, that's uh, the good summary. All right, so now let's talk about what you're doing now. Well, now um, I'm starting a new chapter and uh, I'm uh, moving to the marine insurance broker company, which is one of the leading in Hamburg and in, I would say in Europe called Dole Assecurance Contour. One of the Dole Group uh, companies. I feel very excited about this opportunity because I will continue my business development career but now in the field of marine insurance, which is a new topic, a new field for me. And I'm, I feel very motivated to discover it, to see what I can bring to this area in shipping. So unfortunately, I feel that it might be a bit old-fashioned <laughs> comparing to business development tactics and approaches in sales in a startup. But I think um, to find a middle in both ways of uh, sales. So are you one of the agents, are you one of the brokers then that go out and meet with people and, and talk about their needed insurance coverage then? That's a very interesting word for myself to apply. I call it in a very fancy way business development, but actually when I sat down with my colleagues and tried to understand what exactly are my responsibilities, you call it broker. But a broker, including social media marketing, thinking of different strategies, how the clients can be approached. Okay. So that's going to be something different to bring new ideas and approaches to marine insurance. Self very much believe that shipping can learn a lot from other industries and other industries is already implementing and using media, something that we can also learn and try to implement in marine insurance. So... Are you involved? With, I know you're involved with LinkedIn because that's where we connected. But what other social platforms are you looking at for for promoting the company and, and yourself? Of course, it depends on the um, on the business you do. In case of the nonprofit organization or for community activities, Instagram, for instance, Twitter, YouTube, also podcasts are very very welcome because that's what our generation is actively using and if you use it on your personal level then of course you're looking in professional growth or can i find some uh, people of the same interest if it comes to business then of course i would focus very much on linkedin the way what you post articles in regards to linkedin i would also advise to be more creative and uh, not be afraid of trying new things don't be afraid of of being different because this is what attracts attention of people I very much also believe in podcasts. So that was my point of publishing an article. And I think it's a good way also to speak about business or expertise that you have and reach other audience, different audience that prefer more listening than maybe watching. Do you have your own podcast? Are you going to be producing your own podcast? Honestly speaking, I'm considering 
Okay. I'm thinking about the idea of how it will be, what will be the format. Also about the speaker that I would love to invite. But myself, I found it really fascinating medium, and I'm very much uh, into it. Well, you're talking to somebody that's been a podcaster from pretty much the beginning of podcasting. It was, I've been at it for a long time, just because I saw early on that it gave everybody a personal radio station if they want it, so to speak. But, uh, yeah... It's, I've been this podcast I was started in 2012, so it's been around a long time. And then I had several other podcasts that came and went before that. And uh, but and I have several others in addition to this one as well. But I'm a big believer in podcasts, and I think I if I were you, I would do a podcast in a very specialized area where people in your industry um, that you want to connect to would be available for you to talk to. My daughter started a podcast when she was still in the university, uh, getting her degree in occupational therapy on occupational therapists. And it gave her access to the leaders in the occupational therapy field worldwide, which she would not have had access to just as a student. So it really does open, open doors for you. It does. I'm very uh, thankful that you invited me and that... I have now this pleasure speaking to you and also learning from your guests that you invite. It's It works vice versa or when you are hosting and interviewing or speaking to people or even when you're listening to their stories. I think you uh, learn enormously. You also can reach these people after you listen to because they're pretty open. They are normal human beings. There's nothing that you can't, let's say, touch or reach out. And then if you feel um, similar that you have something in your mind or you want to discuss you always can can approach and uh, try to discuss it in one-to-one basis so i think the opportunities that podcast gives are uh, really incredible thank you really for for the advice because i did consider that the more niche area would uh, raise more interest and then the follower that will be dedicated to this because you simply has a common interest right talk to me about young ships hamburg because you're the uh, you're the executive director of of this little well, I shouldn't say little, this organization, right? Um, the Young Ship organization, historically, the roots coming from Norway, and we have different branches uh, in many parts of the world. <laughs> so we are quite big, but if we speak about Hamburg um, and mission that we pursue is, of course, connecting young professionals, making the space, the platform for them to get together, to be inspired, to be motivated, to exchange opinions and what i also have in my mind is that now at our age is the time to get to know people to get to know also representatives of, of different fields that shipping unites and if we right now can do that then well we have those crowd that's going to stay with us for next 40 50 years and well the more you becoming involved into your job the less you socialize but right now we make a good uh, fundament So this is the bricks that later on will give us the opportunity to reach out, to have friends, to know whom we can approach if any kind of question we might have. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. What you're saying, if I understand you, is you're you're trying to make connections and friendship in the industry right now. And most likely, if those people stay in the industry, they will be contacts and assets and connections for you to use the rest of your life exactly it's a community it's it's a power it's it's a voice so we try to connect 
companies, also representatives with the pool of people that we have in case they want to, I don't know, employ someone or share what they are doing in the industry. So it's a constant flow of information that um, is actually directed for the young the generation. We try to help young people also to find themselves among shipping companies and vice versa for the shipping of companies to show that they are they're welcoming um, younger people, they are seeking for particular professionals and we just ease up this process so no one is lost on the way while they're looking for their next uh, step in their career. So I'm looking at, uh, we're, we're still saving the best for last, but I'm just looking at Hamburg on Google Earth and it looks like there's a very big commercial shipping area on an island. And uh, is it, I guess Hamburg would be considered the shipping capital of Germany. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's 100%. Okay. And what is that river that goes through Hamburg? That's not the Rhine River, is it? No, no, it's the River Elbe probably that you're looking at. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. And that's a navigable river all the way across Europe, isn't it? Through it, uh, many vessels are coming to the port of Hamburg. We see the, the vessels coming in and can observe it uh, because there is a promenade going through nearby this river. And um, my uh, office is uh, very close to it. So it's a big advantage to see how vessels are passing by. And usually I have a, a game with the colleagues to think about what is the tonnage of the vessel and which flag <laughs> it, uh, it sails under. And then when the vessel passes, then we can check it. <laughs> That's one of the entertaining parts that we, we also do for ourselves. All right. Well, I know that river that you're, you're looking at out there, you can take that river all the way up through into Europe and into the Black Sea because I met some dirt Dutch people that actually took their sailboats from Amsterdam into the canals in Europe and went to the Danube and all the way down the Danube into the Black Sea down through the uh, down through Istanbul the Straits of uh, Bosphorus the Bosphorus Straits and then down down to the marina where I was at they were putting their boat up at the end of the year now. I talked to the two guys. There are two different couples that took two different boats on this trip. And I asked them how they enjoyed it. They enjoyed it. And I asked their wives how they enjoyed it. And they sort of, well, we tolerated it. <laughs> that was that was that experience. So I, I saved the best for last. So, all right. You're, you're, you're a ballroom dancer. Yes. Uh, I spent many years of my life on that. So that was pretty my um, teenager's period. And uh, yes, I think I finished of being ballroom dancer when I was, uh, well, 15, 16 years old. Starting from eight years old, I was uh, all the time in the training hall. <laughs> but you were a world champion. That's a very remarkable event for me since uh, I went to the first uh, time in my life, went to Beijing, to China. Um, and that's when I became with my partner a world uh, champions. That was a very fascinating part of my life. Unfortunately, now, well, I still do it in my free time, helping some couples for their maybe wedding in, in case they want to dance <laughs> and make a romantic dance. So that's more now on the hobby basis. Once you are um, doing something professionally, you don't want to do it in an amateur way okay all right is there anything else we should touch on valeria before we 
call it a podcast. I think we went quite actively through my um, career in, in shipping and in general. The only thing that I want to say is uh, encourage my maritime colleagues uh, listening to maritime podcasts and leaving feedbacks and supporting those people that are doing that. can imagine how it, a lot of work is involved. It's a lot of passion. <laughs> as well i guess this is something we can all learn from and also enjoy very much hearing the voices from all over the world speaking about things that we like and do every day <laughs> about shipping and sailing thank you for coming on the podcast i really appreciate it thank you franz life is short in the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f*** gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it.